Hello, everybody. I'm Dr. Laura. Welcome to another episode of Where Work Meets Life. Today's episode is on the emotionally strong leader transforming from the inside out with Carolyn Stern. I was delighted to be introduced to Carolyn Stern. Uh, She lives in Vancouver and she is president and CEO of EI Experience, an executive development and emotional intelligence training firm. She's a certified emotional intelligence and leadership development expert, as well as a professional speaker like myself, an award-winning author, and a university professor. So she keeps busy and makes a big difference in the world. She's, la- she's launched the book, The Emotionally Strong Leader. I'll show it to you. It's a beautiful, vibrant, red book that looks and feels fantastic. It's about the inside-out journey to transformational leadership, and she quickly gained acclaim following her appearances on The Social CTV Your Morning, Daytime Chicago, and Global TV. So she's been all over the place talking about this very impactful book, which won the Axiom Book Award for the best business book in 2023. So that is fabulous. She's been featured on media outlets throughout the globe, including Forbes, Fast Company, The Globe and Mail, etc. And her emotional intelligence modules and courses have been adopted by top universities, and she's trained get this, over 35,000 business leaders across the continent in highly regarded corporations. Welcome to the show, Carolyn. Thank you so much, Laura. I really appreciate you having me. Well, it is my pleasure. And I want to know, Carolyn, what led you down the path of focusing on emotional intelligence in leaders? (laughs) I come from now on honestly because I was an emotional child. <laughs> For many decades, my emotions ran a havoc in my life, if I'm being honest, uh, with a laundry list of undesirable consequences. But, you know, just because I'm an emotional person doesn't mean I'm weak. And I was uh, really sick and tired, Laura, of hearing that, oh, you're so sensitive or you're so emotional. And that they made that seem like that was a negative. And The problem for me was not that I was an emotional person because all emotional means is I feel things deeply. Mm -hmm. But really, um, the problem for me was that I was letting my emotions run amok of my life. And I I wasn't paying attention to understanding or even managing my emotions. They were ruining my world rather than me being in the driver's seat um, of my emotions. So since those days of my childhood, I slowly came to learn that actually emotions aren't the enemy, right? You you can make friends with your feelings and it's not a sign of weakness. And I believe that showing our vulnerability, speaking our truth respectfully and professionally um, and telling others how we really feel is our superpower. And I wanted to write a book because I was sick and tired of hearing leaders like you. Like like you said, I've trained 35,000 leaders across the continent. I was sick and tired of hearing leaders think that being emotional was a sign of weakness or showing emotion was, should cause shame. And so on my own for on 20 years, for 20 years on the side of my desk, very much like you did my research and started realizing that there were strategies out there that I could learn personally on how to be bigger and stronger than my emotions. And then I realized I wanted to teach others how to do, do, do the same. Um, And so that's why I wrote the book. 
Fantastic. And I can relate as that highly sensitive child as well. I would cry so easily at school, which never uh, usually was a great thing. Uh, got that under control now. Um, but uh, I love your analogy of your emotions are important. They're not the enemy, but they belong in the passenger seat. That's right. That's right. And I think the problem is none of us, you, you or me, um, have had an emotional education. You know, being a university professor for 25 years, uh, I've taught high school for five uh, for five years, and then I'm also trained in elementary. I know we're not teaching this in schools. Uh, let's be honest. I give students stress. I don't teach them how to manage it, right? Mm -hmm. um, as a university professor, you put students in teams. You don't teach them how to work within those teams. And I want you to think back, Laura, when you went to your university professor, when you had a challenge with a team member in your group, what did your professor say? Figure it out. Mm -hmm. Right. Like they never mm -hmm. actually taught us how to deal with conflict. And so the problem is we are graduating these kids and mm -hmm. it becomes the leader's responsibility on how to teach them how to play nice in the sandbox, how to how to have a difficult conversation, how to resolve conflict, how to deal with stress, how to make decisions when you're emotional, how, how to how to uh, communicate when when you're feeling um, stressed or emotional or overwhelmed how do you do that well we're not teaching that in schools and so I took it upon myself when I saw such a gap that we focus so much on IQ and nothing on EQ that I started to build a curriculum and because two of my degrees are in education it became it was so natural for me to build a curriculum in mm -hmm. EQ because I could see that there was a gap and I know the ways of how do you uh, how do people learn and how do you make behavior stick and so that's why my programs, I think, have been adopted by so many, um, um, you know, highly regarded places, because, you know, I'm not just this training company that, you know, puts up a shingle and says I'm a, I'm a training facil uh, facility. I actually know the science behind how people learn. And, uh, and when you tie that in with emotions and how do you learn emotional and emotional education, mm -hmm. I think that's really important. I think the one last thing that I'll share is. I think the first thing that we have to do is figure out where are, is our baseline. I don't know about you, but I didn't know what my baseline was. I didn't know, you know, who I am is who I am, right? I don't really kind of analyze myself and pick it apart. And what I realized is when I broke down emotional intelligence into five, 15 different components, I could see where I was high in certain areas and see where I was too high and overplayed some of my uh, qualities and then where I was too low. And once I took once I realized what my emotional intelligence level was, then I could do something about it. And that's what I realized a lot of people don't know at our age is that we don't know what our emotional makeup is and how that's helping or hurting our leadership. And I would say the book takes the reader on a journey through this. So the book is not just about taking in information. It's a series of self-exploration exercises that you can do to develop this emotional intelligence muscle, I would, I would call it. Um, but tell us a little more about who the book is for. The book's for everyone, to be honest. The book is written for everyone. So really, if you've got a problem, um, you know, if you're not happy with the results that you have in your life, maybe it's a relationship you want to improve, Maybe it's you want to become, set better boundaries. Maybe it's you want to increase your confidence. Maybe you want to stop making rash decisions. Maybe it's, it's you want to handle stress better. Whatever your 
uh, you know, Achilles heel is. And for me, I'm pretty honest in the book of what mine is. You know, I have, I grew up with a helicopter parent, a traditional helicopter parent, love my mother. And by the way, she lives with me now. So I could write a book on how to live with your overprotective mother at 52 years old. But, um, <laughs> but that's another book. But, but seriously speaking, um, it really is for everyone because if uh, you, I have yet to meet a person that couldn't benefit from this book. And like you said, the first mm -hmm. part of the book is, you know, setting the context, but the second part of the book is these series of worksheets that I take people through. What's interesting about this process is I take myself through this process every year. So I don't want people to think that, oh, I just write about this. I do this work myself. So every year at the same time of year, I take myself through my six part series because I've, Every year, how I'm faring to life's challenges changes. Think about it, Laura. How you did in nine, you know, 2020 might look very different than how you're doing in 2023, depending on what's going on in your life. What, when my father passed away in 2019, my emotional intelligence was out of whack. Mm -hmm. When COVID hit, you know, I, 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 you know, I had to learn to pivot. Well, thank goodness I have high flexibility. But the problem is, when your flexibility, when you over accommodate and over pivot, then you don't have a strong sense of direction. So it's really about figuring out what that sweet spot is for you. So the moment I realized what, how my emotional intelligence, you know, growing up with a, a overprotective parent makes a 52 year old really needy, makes a 52 year old really insecure, makes a 52 year old um, asking a lot of reassuring questions when I probably know the answers to, and once I realized, and you said, you talked about muscles. I talk about that a lot in the book. We all have these emotional intelligent muscles inside of us. Just supposedly we all have a six pack too. I, I have yet to see mine, but, <laughs> but supposedly it's in there. But if, you know, if I did more curls and crunches, you know, um, at, at the gym, it'd probably come out more, right? My muscles would come out more. It's the same with emotional intelligence muscles. If I acted more independently, and not ask as many reassuring questions, I'd be a little less needy. And mm -hmm. so it's really about building those muscles, doing the work. But let's be honest, that's not easy. Like people always say to me, well, just stop asking reassuring questions. Yeah, that's true, but it's hard. When, when you have this need for validation, when you have this need for approval, when you care too much about what people think, it's really hard to stay in your mind. And, and that is what the book teaches people is to figure out what is your Achilles heel? How is that keeping you stuck? And what can you do about it? The moment I realized that I had, I cared too much about what people think my independence was low and I over accommodate, my flexibility is way too high. That's not a good combination as a leader. Cause let's be honest, Laura, as, a, as someone who employs people, my employees can get away with murder. Right. They can they can take advantage of my generosity because I worry so much about what they think and I want them to be happy all over accommodate. And I might not be as stringent as I could be. So the hardest part for me, even just this Thanksgiving weekend, is I had to have a pretty stern talking, no pun intended with my last name, but I had to have a pretty stern talking this weekend because I was pretty upset about the calendar and how it was being set up. And that's hard for me to give critical feedback to my team. But I also need to be strong. And even though I was scared and uncomfortable, I still need to be strong and say, you know, this is what's best for me and the company. And this is what, how I need you to set up the calendar. And this is how I need. And so that's hard for me because I really want people to like me, 
And I really want to be flexible so that all my employees stay and stick around. And I have to learn when to be more stringent and when to care a little bit less about what they think. Beautiful. Really, really good examples. And thank you for your vulnerability, Carolyn. I know that that probably took a long time to be able to be so authentic in front of an audience. You know, the one thing that I'll say is emotional as I've always been, I've also been really brave. And what I really encourage leaders to do is you don't have to be perfect. I have trained 35,000 people. I have yet to meet a perfect leader. And just before our podcast went live or your podcast went live, right? I was having lots of tech problems. But you, you learn to kind of just deal with what you have in front of you, you know, calm your emotions down. My emotions were pretty high, right? When we started this morning. And, and I'm, I'm slowly, you know, trying to be, bigger and stronger than my emotions. And I'll never forget that probably the worst story that ever happened to me is I was doing a keynote talk in Prince George in front of over a hundred people. And 10 minutes before I was about to go on stage, I got a call that my father passed away. Oh my, I'm so sorry. And I had, a, I had to do my job. And my job was to put on a 90 minute keynote. And I did it. And was it my best keynote? No, but I did it. And at the very end of the keynote, um, I, you know, I, I said uh, something to my father and sort of dedicated the, the keynote to my dad and, and the whole audience like mouth dropped because they couldn't believe what had just happened. Well, interestingly enough, uh, two weeks ago, I was in Prince George and this is four years later. And, um, you know, the book, as I talk about, has helped me, um, being an emotional person, I was also an emotional eater. Uh, food and work were my drug of choices. And so I overate, overworked. And um, I had lo I'd lost 125 pounds since writing this book. And when I got on stage, no one recognized me. And so when I mentioned that story on stage that just maybe some of you remember, you know, four years ago, the audience was just in tears because they couldn't believe not only my physical transformation, but how much this stuff helps me personally. Like it's not just me trying to teach the world these skills. I, I was suicidal, uh, you know, 20 years ago. This book has saved my life. So I really encourage people to pick, if, if there's something in your life that you're not happy with, um, there's a way around that. You just have to first be really brave and take a good, honest look in yourself. And that is really hard, Laura, as you know. And, you know, be willing to do the work. And just like going to the gym, it ain't easy every day. But, you know, if you, if you want that six pack, you do those curls. It's the same things, those crunches. Um, it's the same thing. It isn't easy for me many a days to not let my emotions run a buck. But after 20 years of doing this work, I'm able to have my father pass away and 10 minutes later, get on stage and, and be coherent and have people be inspired by what I have to say and then grieve after. And that's what emotional intelligence has done for me. It's made me realize that I am bigger and stronger than my emotions. Wow, what a powerful example. So obviously, Carolyn, this whole process has 
developed you, helped you evolve and grow. Do you have any a success story of that you're proud of where the book has impacted someone else since it came out that you, you heard from? Oh, so many people have reached out to me, like, like stories that, you know, you finally let me, you know, I've been silent with my boss and I never stood up to my boss and told him that, you know, he was scaring me or that he was intimidating me. And I finally spoke out or you've saved my marriage or my love life. You know, someone jokingly said you should be a sex therapist because my intimacy with my wife has never been better because I'm now being emotionally vulnerable. And like, it's, it's changed people's personal and professional life. There's many examples in the book that I, that I share, but probably one of the mo- one that I'm most proud of is I was working with, and, and in the book, I call him Sean. And, and Sean was um, a senior leader in an engineering and mili- that had an engineering and military background. And he was going to lose his job. And a lot of times, Laura, I'm brought in, um, you know, companies hire me because they don't know what else to do with someone. They're like, you know, he's an emotional, you know, wreck in the office, and we don't know how to work with him. And, you know, he doesn't play nice in the sandbox. And uh, I was told he was a handful. Um, he definitely had inferior social skills. He had a bit of a temper. Um, he thought talking about feelings was a complete waste of time. And I'll never forget in our first meet and greet session, he was so skeptical. Like, let's be honest, no one's ever happy to see the woman that's going to make people talk about emotions, right? I'm never really a, a, a welcome guest when I get into a, a training room or I get, right? No one's, everyone's scared, right? When they, when they think about emotions. But he said to me, and I'll never forget this. He said, having emotions in the workplace is unprofessional. And I've, I was so sh- like, I'm normally met with resi- resistance. You know, people normally are voluntold to work with me <laughs> because their HR leader or manager or board sees this gap and they want to, they think they should learn a new skill. But I've, I couldn't believe someone at that highly educated, that experienced, that senior of a leader could have such a robust mental model about feelings in this way. And what I said to him is there's a difference between having emotions and being emotional. Being emotional in the workplace is unprofessional, but having emotions isn't. It's what makes us human. We all Mm -hmm. have emotions, right? But learning to be stronger than your emotions is critical for success in the workplace. And in our first session, you know, like I said, he was reluctant to, to work with me. I got him to take an EQ assessment. We generated his EQ report, which ranked him on those 15 different emotional intelligence skills. And he and I both learned through that is that he wasn't aware of various, uh, his uh, various emotional states throughout the day of his work. So he was completely um, oblivious to how he was feeling throughout the day. And the problem with that is when he was triggered, he would con- you know, unconsciously affect his decisions or make um, bad communication choices, or he'd have weak interpersonal relationships. And this is what strained a lot of the relationships and connections with his team. So what I asked him to do because his social skills was so low, his homework was, is for five minutes every day. Now this might seem simple to you. And it was simple to me because I don't struggle with this skill, but imagine someone who does struggle with this. And I said, for 15 minutes a day, I want you to go around and socialize with someone at work, but you are not allowed to talk about work. And he felt that was so painful, like that was torture, that I was making him talk to people and small talk. And some days 
he would share with me, oh my God, that was the most awkward conversation. We both stood there completely not knowing what to say. And other times he, he knocked it out of the park and he started making connections. Well, long story short, six months later, not only did he not lose his job, but he got promoted. And that to me just goes to show you, you can teach an old dog new tricks. <laughs> Absolutely. All of us, even me, even a 52 year old can learn to become more independent and stop asking those reassuring questions. It's just not always easy. Mm-hmm. So that is an excellent example. Uh, obviously, a leader can develop the their emotions as a superpower. So tell us a little bit more about how that works. So how emotional intelligence can become a superpower for leaders? Well, I think that the, the, the bottom line is our emotions are incredibly powerful. I think a lot of, we, we overvalue positive emotions and undervalue negative emotions. But you and I both know, they both provide gifts. Every emotion tells you something. And I always like to ask this simple question, but it's, it's just going to highlight how little we know about emotions. What causes frustration versus what causes anger? Normally, when I ask an audience that, it's like their, deer, their, their, their eyes are, are like deers in headlights. They don't know the answer. Yet we feel these things all the time. Now, I don't know, Laura. I don't want to put you on the spot. Um, so I won't ask you. But the causal difference is um, frustration stems from unmet uh, expectations. Um, anger stems from an injustice or an unfairness or a violation. Now, interestingly enough, let's be honest, Lauren, and I hope you will be with me, how many of us, me included, have been frustrated in the office, but shown it as anger, right? Many yes. of us. <laughs> and the problem is, if I could take a moment and go, what am I feeling? And what is that feeling telling me about me? The situation others. If we could pause for that moment and take a moment and really figure out what we're feeling, then we can make a conscious choice what to do about it. Normally what happens is you piss me off in the office. You maybe give me an unrealistic deadline and I'm just frustrated and I don't know, I don't take a moment to say, what am I feeling? I just act. And then I let one moment in time define me forever. I then say to you, screw you. And then I could lose my job because I'm, I'm insubordinate with my boss. But if I could just say, hey, I'm actually frustrated. And the problem is when you see me stomping down the hallway uh, and you're a coworker, you make the assumption that I'm angry when in fact, and we're never brave enough to go up to someone and say, hey, Carolyn, I see you stomping down the hallway. The story I'm telling myself is you're angry. Is that correct? And I'll be, no, I'm not angry at all. I'm just frustrated. Lord keeps giving me these completely unrealistic deadlines. And then, uh, um, but because we don't talk about this, we attribute what this is what psychologists call attribution bias. We attribute an emotion to that person and say, oh, she must be angry when in fact I'm not. And that's how miscommunications, mishaps and misunderstandings happen at work. And so why I think emotional intelligence truly is our superpower is if we can learn to be more intelligent than our emotions. They provide us so many gifts of information. 
Like think about what advertising agencies use. They use consumer behavior as data to sucker us into buying their products and services, right? That's what they do. Mm -hmm. Well, if we could use information as data to, to convince us to make good conscious choices, to not let one moment in time, even though it would feel so good to say, screw you in that moment, that'll define my, my, my trajectory of my career mm -hmm. if I say that. And I don't want to let one moment in time define me. So if I can press pause and say, hey, Laura, you know, when you give me an unrealistic deadline, I feel frustrated. And what I'd like you to do in the future is either A, give me a more warning, give me a, a longer, you know, leeway, or B, if you want me to do this by the end of the day, then Project X will have to wait next week. Now, mm -hmm. if I have that moment to pause and make that conscious choice, I can also decide if I do that, yeah, you might not love my answer, but you'll respect me versus if I say, screw you, mm -hmm. <laughs> I might lose my job. If I write out all of those scenarios, then I can make a conscious choice. And that to mm -hmm. me is our superpower. If we start to no longer fear emotions, but celebrate them. Exactly. And I think putting pen to paper or pausing, taking a pause, taking a walk, etc. Just to let yourself process, understand and, and make a plan. I think too often we're reactive. And I know for myself, especially if I'm tired, um, I just tend to be more reactive. It's very hard to do that. Because um, the tiredness just makes me more, you know, emotional, triggered, frustrated. I'm sure you, you see a lot of that, Carolyn. Yes, absolutely. And, and Here's the interesting thing about you, Laura. You know some of your triggers. So many leaders don't even know what triggers them until it's too late. Mm -hmm. And so what I do with leaders is what triggers you? And it's only until I start throwing things out, examples like, does entitlement trigger you? Does being late trigger you? Does a rocky handoff of a project trigger you? Does, does miscommunication trigger you? Does being dismissed trigger you? Until I start listing these triggers, they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that does trigger me. You know, mm -hmm. being late, if you were late, I was a few minutes late this morning, it, that would not trigger me if I were you. But maybe for you, you're like, she's two minutes late, and maybe that really stressed you out. And so <laughs> well, the problem is we don't know each other's triggers, right? And so, um, you know, I, one of the best things that I learned is, you know, what, what triggers your partner? <laughs> That's an important conversation to have. I now go to the airport three hours before every flight, because I know being late triggers my partner, whereas that doesn't trigger me at all. Yet for me, what triggers me when we travel is I don't like losing things. I'm so worried that the airport airlines are going to lose my luggage. So what do we do? We put all my important stuff in my carry-on. What that, what that leads to is a stress-free vacation, because we know we talk about our triggers ahead of time. And so one of the best things I encourage all people listening is to figure out what triggers you so you can be in, on top of, of it rather than it running you. Lovely. What a great example. And how much can this help relationships? Oh my goodness. Personal relationships, relationships at work. Uh, what a it took great me 52 model. years. It took me 52 years that I cannot tell you I'm in the best relationship I've ever been in. Oh, that makes me so happy to hear, Carolyn. Yeah. Um, 
So the EI experience self-coaching model in the book is a practical set of steps and tools. Um, can you tell us like just briefly, what are the key steps so people have a sense of what steps they'd go through sure. if they in fact get into this book? Sure. Um, so like I said, this is the, the process I take myself through every year. The first thing I do is step one is connect with yourself. So this is the hard part. You got to take a good, honest look in the mirror and accept where you are today. So we identify um, where our strong points are, um, uh, where, where we're struggling right now, but we do it in a non-judgmental way because it's really easy to get really hard on ourselves. And I want to do it from a place of curiosity versus judgment. I want you to get curious about why you are the way you are. The moment I realized I lacked independence because I had a helicopter parent, that made so much sense to me. I could understand. I don't necessarily love that I'm me, but I could understand where it came from. Then the second step is consult with others. Here's what's interesting. Our self-perception is inevitably flawed, right? How you see yourself might not be how others see you. The hardest thing for me to do, uh, Laura, and I encourage people to do this, is to ask five people. Ask five people, trusted friends, colleagues, family members who know you best and interview you, them to see if how you envision yourself is how other people perceive you. Now, here's the funny thing. The hardest person, person for me to ask at the time was my partner. Now, this is no longer my partner, but this was my partner at the time. And I had been with him for seven years. And to be honest, it's still recorded on my phone. I asked him if we could record it because I don't know about you, but when you hear something so personal and painful. Sometimes I don't listen 100% or I forget it. And I wanted to remind myself that, okay, I need to re-listen to this in case I don't, I miss something. And here's the interesting thing. He knew me more than, better than anyone. And I had blind spots. He, he, he showed me things about myself that I didn't even realize. So that's a really hard step. And trust me, it's a step that a lot of people want to skip. They don't want to ask people what they think of them because they don't really want to find out what they think, but it's an important step. The third step is once you take your self-perception and how other people see you, what do you want to focus on? We got to clarify your focus. Um, you know, is this how you are feeling about you today? What is your current reality? And where do you see your life? Where do you want your life to look like? And then you set an EQ goal. What's the one thing you're going to work on? And then from step four is I want you to consider all the things that can help you um, get closer to how you see your best self. And here's the interesting thing. In the book, I give 60 strategies of how do you get closer to your goal? But I also ask, what's going to get in your way? So I want you to think about what are your bar barriers? What's mm -hmm. going to get in your way? What are your roadblocks? Why aren't you at your best self now? And then the fifth step is craft your action plan. How are you going to plan your action plan? Now, here's the interesting thing. Um, and this is a very personal and sort of embarrassing story, but I have gained and lost a hundred pounds four times in the last 15 years. Wow. And four yeah, times. Four times. And I realized the only reason I wasn't able to keep the weight off is because once you get to the goal, you think, yay, I can celebrate. But that's actually when the journey begins. Right. And so what I realized is that people need to have what I call a relapse plan. What are you going to do when you don't have a good day? When you don't set boundaries, 
when you let people walk all over you, when you act insecure, when you make an impulsive decision, when you are completely um, inflexible, when you don't care about people and what they think and aren't empathetic, what are you going to do when you have one of those days? And rather than like me, just feel bad about myself and keep eating because I made a mistake on my diet and then just go back and gain the weight all back. I want people to think about what kind of plan are they going to put in place before they relapse when they're strong? Because trust me, when I go off my diet, I just feel bad about myself. And then when I feel bad about myself, what do I do? I eat. I'm an emotional eater. And then I just stuff my feelings down. Well, I don't want people to do that. When you have a day at work and you lose your temper, I don't want that one day to define you. I want you to get back on track. So I get people to come up with a relapse prevention plan. How are they going to get themselves back on track when and if they relapse? And then finally, the last step is confirm your commitment and close the conversation with yourself. And what that looks like is find an accountability partner. Find someone who's going to keep you honest. I have an accountability partner. That if I am not, uh, it's my workout buddy, and she used to be able to just text her and say, okay, I worked out today. She doesn't trust me. She makes me call her when I'm breathing heavily on the treadmill <laughs> to make sure I am on that treadmill because that's the kind of accountability partner, someone who's going to keep me honest. And if I can talk <laughs> with, without breathing heavily, she makes me work out harder. So I want you all to find someone who's mm -hmm. going to be your accountability partner. And here's one thing that I'll share. lastly share. My independence competency advisor is Natalie, who's my business development manager. She's half my age. I sign her paychecks, but she is the most independent millennial, Gen X, I know. And she constantly helps me when I care too much about what people think. When, I, when someone gives me a thumbs down on my video, and it hurts my feelings and I feel like crying. She's the one that picks up the phone and calls me and says, you know, we believe in you, I believe in you and you've got this. And so that's the kind of a commitment buddy you need. And so that's what we do on the final step. Awesome. Well, thank you for that. So just to wrap things up, Carolyn, what's one book and one podcast that has helped you recently in your own development that you'd recommend to our listeners? Well, uh, a lot of the work I do um, is so closely connected to Brene Brown. Love her work, Dare to Lead, her podcast, her book, uh, Dare to Lead podcast. Love it. Um, but really, I just, I, 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 it's, there's not one person that I'm, I listen to. I listen to so many people for my own growth and development. So I get a variety of ideas. But that's, that's one off the top of my head. Beautiful. And my final question I ask all guests is if you had one wish for a better world, when it comes to emotional intelligence, what would it be, Carolyn? If I could tell every business leader who's struggling to get any kind of the results that they, that they want, it would be this. Don't be afraid of your emotions, yours or those of your teens. Feelings are not facts. They are just feelings, not good or bad, right or wrong. They are just simply an emotional reaction to a person, thing, or situation. So make friends with your feelings. Beautifully put. Thank you so much. I just love listening to the way you describe things, Carolyn. I love how you share your own personal vulnerabilities, your, your stories, what you've been through. And I think what stood out to me most is the fact that you go through this set of activities 
every year. Um, and that yep. tells me a lot. <laughs> that tells me that this uh, really does work and make a difference in your life and many, many people's lives. So thank you yep. for the work that you're doing in the world, Carolyn. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. And thank you for being such a gracious host. My pleasure and stay well. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Where Work Meets Life. If you found this content valuable, please rate and review the episode and share with others who may benefit. Visit me on my website at drlaura.live and sign up for my monthly e-newsletter full of tips and resources. I'm also a passionate keynote speaker and would be delighted to speak with you on your speaking needs. Stay well.